Good morning, and welcome to the January 30th, 2023 edition of Mountain Money. I'm your host, Roger Goldman. I'm here with my co-host, Doug Wells. Doug, good to see you back in the studio. Good to be back on this frigid morning here in Park City, and let's all take a breath and, and have a moment of tranquility after a successful Sundance. Thank you to the town. Thank you uh, for the great Sundance event. It takes a village to make it happen in the village of Park City. Hit the ball out of the park. Thank you to everybody. And you do feel the big exhale this morning. So, uh, while you're exhaling, we hope you'll join us for the next hour. We've got a really interesting show coming up. We're going to start our hour with author Chris Miller about his new book, Chip Wars, The Quest to Dominate the World's Most Critical Technology. And then our next guest is going to be Carl Richards, a local parkite and creator of the Sketch Guy column. He appears weekly in the New York Times. And Carl's going to share how he makes complex financial concepts easy to understand. And then Mound Money's going to end the hour by talking with Powder Watts, a smart camera system that helps manage your rooftop heat cables. All this and more on Mound Money. Please stay tuned. Our lives are surrounded by technology only made possible by the presence of integrated circuits or what we call chips. The silicon chip is central to the world's commercial and military economies. Not only is the technology behind the modern chips, which cram millions and billions and who knows, maybe trillions of transistors into tiny cases, not only is that incredibly complex, but the process of designing and manufacturing a cutting edge trip involves multiple countries. And central to the manufacturing of chips today are foundries in Asia and Taiwan in particular, a situation that's concerning concerning given the increasingly unstable relationship between Taiwan and mainland China. So how did we get here? The history of the chip is filled with swashbuckling, colorful characters, brilliant engineers with the courage to take risks. Author Chris Miller has written a new book chronicling how we got here and the challenges presented by the complexities of the chip world in his new book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. We're lucky to have him with us this morning. Welcome to Mountain Money. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a little bit about the birth of the industry. Who were the technological grandparents and how did we move from complex theory to practice? Well, the industry emerged in the late 1940s and uh, early 1950s as transistors, which are tiny switches that flip on and off, uh, were invented and then began to be mass manufactured. But it wasn't until the late 50s, 1958, 59, when the first set of transistors were put together on the same piece of uh, semiconductor material, which came to be called the chip. Uh, and so it was two companies, Texas Instruments and Fairchild Semiconductor, that invented this first product. And at the time, they just had a handful of transistors on each chip, so could measure or process a single uh, set of digits, ones or zeros, the type of digits that undergird all computing. But since that point, the complexity of this has grown exponentially, making possible all of the computing we take for granted today. Yeah, and, <clears throat> excuse me, how important, uh, I understand, Chris, when I was doing my research for this, you actually did not set out to write a book on chips. You set out to write a book on missiles, and that really underscores the importance of the chips in today's military complex. Talk to us about why the chips are, are the central power uh, to any military organization. Well, the, the first chips were invented actually for missile guidance systems. The first 
major order for semiconductors in the early 1960s was for the guidance computer that went into the Apollo spacecraft's guidance computer. And the second major order shortly thereafter was for a guidance computer in the Minuteman II intercontinental ballistic missile that was intended to deliver nuclear warheads from the continental United States to the Soviet Union. And there's been a really deep interrelationship between advances in computing technology and advances in military systems. And indeed, the government has been a major funder of chip R&D since that time. The Defense Department and especially its R&D arm, the Defense Department's uh, Advanced Projects Research Agency has poured billions of dollars into chip research over the past several decades to push forward the types of capabilities in computing, sensing and communications that militaries rely on today. One of the things you talked about in the book that I found fascinating was the impact the chip had on missile, you know, uh, reliability. And you, you talked about how in Vietnam, so, so many of the, the missiles were fired and missed their targets, but the chip changed that. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, one of the, the hardest problems of uh, defense systems in the uh, middle of the 20th century was getting munitions to hit their target. It was possible to compute the trajectory of a missile or of artillery shell, but for a long time it wasn't possible to put all of the computing power in the nose of a missile, for example, because computers were the size of entire rooms during the 1940s, 50s, or 60s. And it was only as computing power was miniaturized and put on tiny silicon chips that it became feasible to give a single munition enough computing to guide it accurately towards its target. And that was something that the U.S. was a leader in in the 1960s and 1970s. And as it became clear that computing would uh, become even more miniaturized as years passed, the U.S. invested very heavily in trying to find ways to put computing in all manner of military devices. And so today it's not only munitions like missiles or bombs that have computing capabilities embedded inside of them. It's basically every device on a battlefield will have in many cases dozens or even hundreds of chips managing the guidance, managing the communications, managing all of the different sensors and helping to interpret and process the data that the sensors are um, accumulating. Today, it's basically impossible to envision a defense system that doesn't have lots and lots of semiconductors inside. And, and so given the importance of the chip, not just to the military complex, but for everything we do, right? My refrigerator uh, runs on a, a chip, my microwave, everything in our lives runs on a a chip. Uh, you know, here in the studio, we've got this complex board. It looks like you got to be an airline pilot uh, to operate it. Given that, isn't it a mutual self-destruction if, like for instance, Taiwan, you know, we were talking about the Vietnam War, a, a current com, uh, a current struggle that we're facing now is potentially with Taiwan and China. Isn't it, isn't it in everybody's best interest to just leave Taiwan alone? And does that somehow protect it from military complex? Or does history teach us that political leaders aren't that astute and mutual self-destruction is not necessarily a deterrent? Well, I think it, it, it depends and we're not going to know in, until time has passed and we see how, how Chinese leaders make their decisions. Um, but I, I guess history suggests to me that we shouldn't be all that confident that economic and technological interdependence, which is what we've got today with the entire world from the US, Europe, Japan, even China relying very heavily on Taiwan made chips. 
there's no reason from history to think that that's going to guarantee peace. There's lots of examples historically of economically integrated countries, nevertheless, going to war. And you know, 2022, just last year, provided a pretty, uh, pretty clear example of uh, the ways in which economic interconnections don't guarantee peace. If you look at Angela Merkel's energy strategy vis-a-vis -vis Russia for the last decade, it was to get closer and closer to Russia, buying more and more Russian gas on the thesis that that would moderate Russian foreign policy. And that, that proved completely false. Uh, and it proved so false that the Russians even blew up the pipelines that were intended to send Russian gas to Germany. So I don't think anyone who's betting on the Chinese government being deterred from trying to use its military to take Taiwan um, and, and, and being deterred because of the economic consequences has a really strong historical justification for thinking that. It might be true that uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership will decide to prioritize their economy, but there's lots of examples in history of leaders who make the opposite choice and gamble their economic future on their desire to uh, to get a better um, position in a geopolitical competition or to take back territory that they think is justifiably theirs. So I think there's uncertainty, which is why I'm quite nervous because the world economy simply can't function without chips that are made in Taiwan. You know, that's really, it's, the, the Taiwan story is fascinating. Let's take a step back and talk about Gordon Chang and how, ta how Taiwan came to be so important and what its role is today. You know, uh, in, in sort of the, why is it so central? to the manufacture of chips in the world? So in the 1960s, the Taiwanese government was um, very smart in looking forward into the future and realizing that the electronics industry and semiconductors in particular were going to be an extraordinary growth sector and that if they bet on integrating themselves very deeply with US-centric supply chains, they could not only build very good businesses, but also uh, help guarantee that the US uh, saw Taiwan as a priority. And so since the 1960s, the Taiwanese government has been very supportive of uh, Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese firms as they've tried to build up their capabilities and grow in the semiconductor space. In the 1980s, they, uh, they brought in a executive named Morris Chang, who previously spent his career at Texas Instruments in Dallas. Uh, and they offered him essentially a blank check to build up a uh, chip industry in Taiwan. And so in 1987, they founded the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which has grown and grown and today is the world's biggest chip maker. And it's also the world's most technologically advanced chip maker. Today, TSMC, this one company produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips. And it does so just in a tiny number of facilities, almost all of which are in Taiwan. And, and the U.S. is looking at this, and, and the whole world's looking at this and saying, okay, we're in a precarious situation. You just mentioned 90% of the uh, high-level chips are produced in, in Taiwan. Uh, and the, one of the U.S.'s reaction is the passing of the CHIPS Act to get manufacturing uh, re restarted here in the U.S., to get a higher level of manufacturing here. What do you think the impact is going to be on the CHIPS Act both to help America gain independence, but also looking at this chess game, this geopolitical chess game, how does this move affect other world leaders' future moves? 
Well, it is a complex calculus because uh, almost every major country today is looking at the chip industry and trying to improve its position. And that, that's partly why I called the book Chip War. You've got this struggle between not only companies, but also countries uh, trying to jockey for position. The, the US, Europe, Japan, India, South Korea, even Taiwan, all of these countries have just in the last several years announced new programs to try to provide more funding or support for their chip industries. Now, the US starts from a position of comparative strength across most of the chip supply chain in chip design or in the ultra precise machine tools that uh, are used to manufacture chips. You basically can't make an advanced chip without touching US tools and US software. But when it comes to manufacturing, obviously the US is quite dependent on Taiwan. And that's what the Chips Act is trying to change by making it more cost effective to manufacture chips in the US and to increase the number of firms that decide to do so when it comes to cutting edge processes. Today, the US consumes around a quarter of all chips produced in the world, but it only manufactures around 10%. And so the goal of the Chips Act is to get that number a bit higher. But you're right to suggest that there is to some extent a, a bit of a zero sum aspect to this competition. If, if one country grows its market share, uh, somebody else is going to lose it. And none of the governments uh, in the world today are, are, are willing to see that happen. And so you've got a bit of an arms race in terms of subsidies and incentives that a variety of different governments are participating in. The biggest player when it comes to subsidies is, of course, China, uh, which is spending a Chips Act a year and has been for the last decade in terms of uh, pouring money into its domestic chip industry. Uh, in some ways, that's the biggest challenge uh, that the Chips Act faces is trying to find a way to counter the scale of subsidies that the Chinese government is uh, putting forth. Another sort of interesting element of the book was how you described the way in which uh, the, so the, the thing called Moore's Law, the ability for the chip, chip, chip capabilities to advance so fast, the way in which the technological challenges of shrinking, uh, the, the, shrinking the, 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 the mask and creating the ability to add more transistors to the chip, the way in which that developed. I mean, you start out with a wonderful scenario of someone actually deciding to turn a microscope upside down to, to shrink an image to burn it onto a chip. T talk to us a little bit about how we've gone from upside down microscopes to where we are today and the challenges of sort of continuing to have the advances that Moore's Law calls for. Well, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary uh, story, not only of improved design of chips, but actually the manufacturing process has gotten so much better. And we don't normally think of uh, computing is involving manufacturing, but in fact, all of the transistors that process or remember all of the ones and zeros undergirding all computing have to be fashioned out of silicon. And so today, a, a, a cutting edge chip that you could buy in a smartphone, for example, at the Apple store will have 15 billion transistors carved into a tiny piece of silicon, each one of these transistors the size of coronavirus. And so the manufacturing precision that's needed to undertake uh, these processes is extraordinary. And so from the start of the chip industry, where, as you say, the companies were working with pretty makeshift tools, today the most advanced tools that can uh, that can undertake these processes of, of manufacturing transistors and silicon can cost uh, one or $200 million. They're so large, they require multiple airplanes to transport, and they're capable of being made by just a handful of companies. Uh, three companies in California, one in the Netherlands, and one in Japan have almost complete control of the uh, market for producing these ultra advanced machine tools because the type of manufacturing they do is the most precise manufacturing humans have ever undertaken. 
If you're just joining the conversation, we're speaking with Chris Miller. He's the author of Chip Wars, The Quest to Dominate the World's Most Critical Technology. Chris, you just mentioned that Japan has the capability to produce some of these. There's only a handful of countries, Japan is one of them, that can produce these complex chips. Um, you talk about in your book that in the 1980s, uh, the chip industry was threatened uh, by Japan. Uh, can you tell us that story? Well, one of the, the first uh, new entrants into the chip making market was Japan, uh, where there were a number of uh, firms that were very skilled at precision manufacturing and therefore uh, well suited to chip making. And as they gained market share, they sparked real fear in the United States about the impact on the U.S. chip industry and the tech sector more generally. And so there was a lot of tension in terms of trade between uh, the governments in Washington and in Tokyo about the impact of rising Japanese competitors. But in the end, it ended up being um, much more uh, of a political issue than actually a, a technological struggle because uh, just as Japan's market share was beginning to peak in the late 80s, and early 1990s, there were big technological shifts that were actually changing the way the industry was structured. For example, in the early days of the industry, uh, companies almost always both designed and manufactured uh, chips in-house. But today, most chips are designed by a firm that specializes in chip design and manufactured by a firm that specializes in manufacturing. So you have the disambiguation of the uh, industry into multiple different subsets. And the Japanese were far behind on that technological trend, uh, for example. They also uh, missed the boat when it came to the invention of microprocessors of the type that's in your PC or your smartphone today, which is something that U.S. companies like Intel specialized in. And so all of the trade tension at the time ended up being something of a non-issue because in just a couple of years after it seemed like Japan was about to take over the world's chip industry and uh, as a result get a privileged position in the, the world's tech infrastructure. In fact, Japanese firms faced tremendous difficulties because they failed to keep up to these big technological shifts that Silicon Valley had a, an edge on uh, relative to the Japanese competitors. So the industry is broken up in different countries, different companies have specialties that play a critical role in developing these complex chips. What, what is the U.S.'s strength in, in this complex web of, of development? So there's a number of different steps to make a chip. You start with ultra-specialized software uh, that's capable of designing a chip with billions of transistors on it. And there are basically three companies that play the dominant role in this industry. All three of them are based in the U.S. So there's a, a place where the U.S. has a, a very strong position. Next, when it comes to actually doing the chip design, uh, U.S. firms are the leaders here too. Companies like Qualcomm, Apple, which is a major chip designer, designs all of the key chips inside of, the, of its iPhones or iPads in-house. Um, NVIDIA, AMD, and other companies are real experts in chip design and have capabilities that no one else can match. So in chip design, too, the U.S. is by far the leader in, in the production of the machine tools that actually do the manufacturing of chips. It's impossible to make an advanced semiconductor without buying machine tools from a couple of companies in California. And so there, too, the U.S. position is very strong. It's really only in the actual manufacturing of chips themselves. And then in the final step, which is assembling and testing chips to make sure that they work where the US position has been less strong. In the manufacturing process, it's, it's Taiwan and to a lesser extent South Korea that play the biggest role. And in the assembly and test um, step, uh, which has traditionally been a lower tech, lower value add 
um, process, there's a lot more uh, uh, competition from Southeast Asia, China, other lower cost um, locations. And because of the U.S. position being quite strong in the um, upstream part of the value chain, the CHIPS Act and most of the debate today is all about how do you increase U.S. share in chip manufacturing? Because that's where U.S. firms can't match some of the capabilities that TSMC in Taiwan can do. And also it's a really high value part of the process. TSMC is the largest publicly traded company in Asia um, because it's built such an incredible business undertaking this chip manufacturing. And because of that, the U.S. wants to make sure it's got a larger share of chip fabrication happening in the U.S. in case of a crisis. Before we go, um, Chris, over the weekend, the Wall Street Journal ran a story about how China's top nuclear weapons lab has been using sophisticated American computer chips in weapons development, notwithstanding that the export of those chips has been banned for a number of years. Talk to us a little bit about how sort of espionage and sort of illegal efforts to obtain the technology by both the Russians and the Chinese have affected the industry over the years. Well, there's been espionage since the beginning of the industry, but the reality is that it's a, a tricky tactic to use in terms of catching up. Because if you're trying to learn how to make chips uh, yourself, espionage can only get you so far. The, the industry races forward at the exponential rate dictated by Moore's law. And so espionage hasn't really worked historically as a strategy to learn how to make chips. Now, it's different when it comes to stealing chips and acquiring chips. There it can work better, but you don't actually learn how to manufacture the chips if you've just uh, stolen them, sort of like how you don't learn how to bake a cake if you steal one uh, from a bakery. And so the, the Russians and, and, and China increasingly are going to focus on smuggling in chips because they're being cut off from accessing the most advanced chips by U.S. regulations. But the more smuggling they do, uh, it won't help them in terms of actually learning how to manufacture chips at the cutting edge, uh, which is something you only learn by uh, decades of expertise. Uh, and that's why the U.S. is 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 devising its tech strategy vis-a-vis -vis China on the thesis that China is going to struggle to catch up in chip making, and therefore it's going to be unable to deploy the most advanced chips in its data centers, and it won't be able to train advanced AI systems because its data centers and its chips will be less advanced. And the U.S. is hoping to take the advantage over China in computing power, deploy this to military and intelligence systems, and thereby gain a leg up in the arms race with China that's underway in the Western Pacific. And so it gets back to the, the concept of this being a chip war. The U.S. strategy right now is all about holding China back to enable the U.S. to keep developing the world's most capable military systems. Well, it's a fascinating in, uh, industry, and it's e an even more fascinating book. Chris, you did a great job. The book is Chip Wars, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, and we've been speaking with Chris Miller, its author. Chris, thank you again for joining us on Mound Money. Thanks for having me. And Mound Money will be right back, and we're going to talk about finance. Joining us in studio is Carl Richards. He's also known as the Sketch Guy, he, and he's a local parkite that we're lucky to have here in Park City. Through his simple sketches, Carl's, Carl makes complex financial concepts easy to understand. His sketches also serve as the foundation for his two books, The One-Page Financial Plan, A Simple Way to Be Smart About Your Money, and The Behavior Gap, a simple way to stop doing dumb things with money. Carl, uh, in the green room, just uh, briefly before here, I told you I'm a longtime fan, so mm -hmm. welcome, and thank you for coming in studio. Yeah, cheers, Doug. Super good to be here. So uh, one of your books talks about the behavior gap, something that uh, if, if there's 
10 people in the audience that know what that is, I'd be surprised, but it's critically important. What is the behavior gap? Yeah, so the behavior gap originally was this difference between the average investment and the average investor return. And it's crazy. We underperform over time the investments we own because we're always looking to buy high and sell low. We're switching. We're looking for the best investment all the time. And that well... No, no, wait. Isn't that backwards? Yeah. You're supposed to buy low and sell That's high. exactly right. This well-intentioned search for the best investment leads to this crazy behavior, which leads to a gap in returns. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this. What, what you're telling us is that as consumers, we look at a stock that's going up and go, aha, that must be a good one. So we buy it, so we end up buying high. Is that, is that what you're saying? I'm trying to understand it. Yeah, yeah, Roger, <laughs> that, that's exactly right. I mean, when everybody else is doing something, mm -hmm. you know, what do you hear on the news? Mm -hmm. Right? You get excited, your friends are excited, a stock is going up, and then you get interested in it. Same thing with the market, same thing with real estate, same thing with crypto, the whole thing, right? Same thing with tulip bulbs years and years ago. Mm -hmm. So we rush in. We're, we're basically hardwired to get more of what gives us security or pleasure and to run away from things that cause us pain. And the way that that's kept us alive as a species, that's a good thing, right? But the way that manifests in our investing lives is we end up buying high mm -hmm. and selling low, as crazy as that sounds. So it's kind of like investor FOMO, right? That's exactly. <laughs> if FOMO leads to it. The herd behavior leads to it. I've got to get in, all of that stuff. And, and so, Carl, when we planned for today's interview, there were a bunch of, our producer, Allison Kulo, gave us a bunch of questions ahead of time, most of which were very tactical. And I'm, I'm in the financial advising industry, yeah. too. And oftentimes people come to us with the tactical questions. And, and you sent us an email that I would also send to somebody and say the tactical is interesting, but where we can move the needle is on these strategic questions. Yeah. Talk to us about some of the strategic questions that you see really helping the people that talk to you. Yeah, I, thanks for asking that. I, I think we often, because we read and see in the financial pornography network, right, like that the job is to find the best investment, to maximize return, we fail to ask a simple question, which is why? Like, why am I even doing this in the first place? It reminds me of Covey's old, paraphrase of Covey's old phrase that the last thing you'd want to do is spend your whole life climbing, climbing a ladder only to find it leaning against the wrong wall. So I think before, and I, I think there's a reason we're on this, this sort of hamster wheel of chasing, chasing, chasing. And I see it particularly, I mean, I've been interested since we've moved back from New Zealand. We've been back two years. The number of conversations I've had with people here locally about like, look, I'm, I'm doing all the things right. Why am I not happy? Right? Why is it not enough? And it's always quiet, like at Park City Coffee Roasters, like look around, make sure nobody hears you. And then say, why is it not enough? So I think getting below the surface and asking these questions about why is far more important than reading the latest issue of the Financial Pornography magazine. Yeah, so let me quickly respond uh, and, and share a thought on that. When I got into the industry, I was fascinated as a young advisor by all these financial planning articles and the various techniques to maximize your net worth. But the longer I've been in the business, and I've been in the business now 20 plus years, I find myself to be more of a student of philosophy mm -hmm. and believe it or not, of stoicism, which has this, 
this rep stoicism is the greek philosophy it has this reputation for you know being frugal doing without you know this cow standing out in this rainy day just not not sad not happy but that's not what stoicism is about it's really about figuring out who you are as a person yeah. why is that so important for people to know who they are outside of work particularly for people here in park city who in many regards have won the society's definition of the game of life yeah so good so good yeah i i think it's been again i maybe i can make a claim from our four years in new zealand like it's been interesting coming back to realize how much money and work are the organizing principle of our lives here right we we, we tend to center everything around money and work and the problem with that is money and work don't deliver. Like, and then again, the number of conversations I've had with my age cohort, like 45 to 55 year olds saying, is this all there is? Like, is this what I did it for? And the, the reason that's happening is because if, you're, can't, if you can't find enough, right, what it means to have enough, if, you can't, if you're insecure with money, more money won't solve that problem. And we think it will because we've been told, like, if I just get, if I just get. And, of course, we all point at the teenagers and say, like, peer pressure, you know, that's not what adults do. And then we just run and do the same thing. And it's really insidious, right? This keeping up with the Joneses thing that goes on here in a big way isn't, it's not like we look to do it. It's not like we see our neighbor with the new flash car and think, hey, I need or one. Or carbon fiber mountain bike. It, carbon fiber. It's, not, it's, it's just that we see it. There's a seed planted. We give ourselves permission. We think, oh, that's interesting. We don't say, well, they have one. I need one. But it just creeps in. And, and we call that lifestyle creep, right? And, and this hedonic treadmill of never being satisfied. And I think we solve that by getting underneath and saying, hey, what, do, what, what do I really want? What do I really value? Who do I trust? Where do I want to spend my time? I must confess that I did not have on my bingo card talking with two financial advisors uh, on, on a topic of why right. the finances are not as important as anything Roger, else. now you know how I feel when we're talking to the chief legal counsel of a Fortune 500 company. I'm just sitting here trying to keep up. <laughs> but what do you say when people ask you that question, when they, when they ask that question about what is enough? Yeah, I look at the series of figuring out what, uh, well, first of all, help them get through that? first of all, I help. I mean, the first thing is that sort of pull the rug out from underneath that money's the solution, right? That that's the first, I just got this email from a really good friend saying, you know, I never, and, and he pointed at, uh, essentially sent me a net worth statement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I compared his net worth statement to most of the people I know, he had, and he was saying, I just don't have enough. I'm just worried it's all going to go away. So the first problem is we got to pull that rug out and say, look, money's not going to solve the problem. So, and then I think practically to, to tactics, right, is just start trying a series of experiments. I think learning to have enough has more to do with where am I going to spend my time? Where am I going to align my use of capital? And when I say that, use of capital, I think of time, money, energy, and attention. How can I align my use of capital with what's actually important to me? And the key to figuring out what's actually important to me, I mean, you can get a hint at looking at how you spend your time and money now. But more importantly, just try little experiments, right? Like, does volunteering help? Is my work, is there something I could change about what the work I do? I, spending time, I mean, the research is pretty clear. Experiences with the people you love will drive happiness far more than anything on a balance sheet. So, Carl, 
oftentimes when potential clients come to me, they're looking for the next Warren Buffett. They're hoping I've got this crystal ball that, you know, they haven't been able to find in their 50 or 60 years as they've been building their net worth. What should people look for when they're talking to a financial advisor? Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you're looking for a financial advisor, the first thing I would be looking for is somebody who actually takes the time. (laughs) This is crazy, crazy, but takes the time to diagnose before they start throwing prescriptions at you. Like our industry is so full of people who will just chuck prescriptions at you. Don't like blue? I've got green, Mr. and Mrs. Client. So taking the time to understand, asking really good questions. In fact, I think the ideal first meeting with a financial advisor is them asking a lot of questions, trying to understand what it is you're trying to do and walking you through. I mean, the ideal first meeting is somebody cries on the couch, right? Now, I know that's not what you go into, and I'm joking a little bit, but you know, I know that's not what you go into a meeting with a financial advisor thinking, but can we get beneath? Can they ask questions? What's important to you? What do you want to do? What's the impact you want to have long before we start looking for products to fulfill that impact? Good financial advisors help you come up with a plan, help you come up with a strategy. Great financial advisors help you question the path that you're on and help you make sure that you're on the right path. Um, You were talking earlier about how you spend your time and how you spend your money, right? The the most valuable resource any of us have is our time. You just chose to invest two years in New Zealand. Tell us about why you chose to go to New Zealand. Yeah, so we were there four years. It was supposed to be a year, you know, and that's how things work in New Zealand. Like, it's supposed to be a year. Um, We really went there, to be honest. I didn't know the plan at the time. My wife was just wise enough to see that... I had had my foot on the gas for so long that I was a broken human, right? And this is fun to admit on air. I've done this on, in my column in the New York Times too. But it was just a, a, a chance to say, hey, and because my work, I can do it from anywhere, right? It was just a chance to say, look, what really matters here? Let's go figure it out. Now, I didn't know that going into it. I thought it was just a cool experience for a year. Right, but I quickly found out that there was a deeper purpose there. It was just to figure out what what was important to me, what was important to our family, and it was it was amazing. One of the things, let's talk a little bit about your column because you're called the sketch guy for a reason. Can you sort of share with the audience a little bit about how and why you use sketches to illustrate financial concepts? Yeah, first, just a super quick story. When the first year or two, of the, maybe the first year of the column, it didn't have a name. And my editor, Ron Lieber at the New York Times, came up with the name sketch guy. And I remember coming home and telling my daughters, you know, my teenage daughters, hey, the Times has a call, it has a name, it's called the Sketch Guy. And of course, my daughters were like, Dad, please, come on. Like, the Sketch Guy is the guy that wears Sounds the, sketchy. you know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So the idea behind the column was take financial concepts that seem to be complex to people. They involve math, they involve money and emotion. There's this just really interesting cocktail around money and try to reduce them down to as few words and a simple illustration. I had no illustration. I mean, my only art background is a pottery class I took at the Kimball at, when I was eight, right? So all I had was a Sharpie and cardstock. And so I would draw with a Sharpie. And those, those originated from meetings with clients, sitting in a, in a conference room with a client with blank stares. And I would say, no, like this on the whiteboard. And there would be this aha moment. So each column was as few words as possible with a sketch. 
and, and they are simple drawings. I mean, I, I, I don't think you hold yourself out as a great artist, but they That's do communicate sure. well. Yeah, I mean, when, when done right, and I, I, I get them wrong a lot, but when I get them right, they act as a, both a shortcut into an idea and a souvenir of the idea. So I think of them as shortcuts and souvenirs. Yeah, and in full disclosure, um, some of these concepts that financial advisors try to communicate are complicated, and they're, they're told a lot better with a, with a sketch. Yeah. Uh, and I have some of your sketches are, are core uh, to my communications portfolio mm -hmm. with my mm -hmm. clients. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, you've also got an active uh, Twitter uh, presence. Uh, and I don't know if this is going to work. It's only four sentences. I'm going to read the tweet uh, that yeah. you shared with me and then ask you what you meant by it. So yeah. here goes, audience. I hope, I hope this works. It's, it's five sentences. This is a, a tweet by our guest, Carl Richards. And Carl says... I'm convinced that enough is not a number. Enough is not a place where you arrive. Only you can create the conditions of enoughness. What does it mean to you to live in enoughness? What are your, what are your conditions of enoughness, and are they true? Mm. Carl, what you, first off, very profound, mm. right? Um, what did you mean by that last question? What are your conditions of enoughness and are they true? How could it not be true? Yeah, so what I was pointing to there is often we think, I, you know, I, I can relax when, right? I'll, 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 I'll feel secure when the house is paid off and the business does this and the what, you know, whatever. And so we're setting up conditions around the idea of having enough. And there are some conditions that I think are true, right? Like it's nice to feel safe and secure. I don't think most of our audience, your audience is in that position, right? I think I'm, what I'm saying is most of, our, most of your audience already has enough by almost any standard or country or worldwide. So the question around is, are they true? Is have we really, do we really need to get to X? Because I promise you when you get to X, you'll say, yeah, I just need 2x. Hmm. I just need 10. At every single, we move the goalposts. This is human nature. So the question is, maybe you're still driven to build and grow like a lot of this community is, and that's amazing. But maybe we can have enough while we build and grow, right? Like maybe those conditions are false conditions. Maybe we don't have to have 10x before we can feel secure. Maybe we can still grow and build and do all the amazing things that so many people in this community do and feel secure, and feel like we have enough. So that was just a call to question. Like, I don't actually know the answer, right? I, I just am super curious about it. Yeah, and, and Roger, we're gonna get, you're going to get the last question, but I just want to add on to uh, what Carl just shared. The four most dangerous words a financial advisor can hear from his or her client is just two more years, just a million more. If you're 60 years old, people don't think about this, but it's true. If you're 60 years old, you are lucky if you have a thousand weeks left of healthy, active time in front of you. That's not a lot of time. So be really careful when you say just two years more or just another million. Doug, so important. Can I tell just a super quick story? I, I recently, my 20... 
she was 23, my 23-year-old daughter said, hey, Dad, I want to spend spring break with you. And I hope everybody listening knows the answer to that, right? Like if your 23-year-old daughter says, I want to spend spring break, you say yes. And I happen to have a work, vaca- a work trip in California, and I've got this adventure truck, and I was driving the truck down there. I said, fly to California, we'll go surfing in Baja. So we go surfing in Baja, and it ended up being a very long trip. And I came back, and, and somebody here in the community, we were chatting, and he's like, man, I, I wish, like, you take so much time off. Um, shouldn't you be focused on, and this is the words came out of their mouths, shouldn't you be focused on building intergenerational wealth? And I don't want to punch people in the nose very often, but I was like, what are you talking about? You, you are know, creating that's what intergenerational wealth. Are you talking wealth? about yeah. the conversation I had with my daughter in a fire with no one within hours of us while surfing every night after uh, the fire every night after surfing in Baja? Are you talking about that intergenerational wealth? So I just think we get, what's it for, right? A million more? What's it for? Yeah. Roger, I know we're on a, a tight timeline, so unfortunately we need to say goodbye to our local, the sketch guy, Carl Richards. Fascinating conversation. Very important. Uh, thank you for coming in, and hopefully we can have you come in again sometime soon. Yeah, cheers, Doug. Thanks, Roger. Welcome back to Mound Money. Boy, how do I, I transition from that conversation? Uh, apologies to the audience. I could talk about financial advising all day long, but we are going to switch gears and we're going to talk about something that is related to snow and is definitely related to the cold weather uh, that we're having. We've got Thomas Clarity here with Powder Watts, and Powder Watts is a revolutionary Internet of Things smart camera system that monitors rooftop conditions and uses machine learning and AI to make decisions on when to switch on and switch off your rooftop heat cables. Thomas, welcome to Mountain Money. Good morning. So that sounds incredibly complex. Uh, For an area of the country, Park Cityites, we need this on our rooftops. Uh, But how big is that market once you get outside of ski towns? Oh, my. It's surprisingly big. We... uh I moved here about 11 years ago and switched on those heat cables. Uh, my, the previous owner of our home left a note and said, hey, don't forget to turn these on in November and turn them off in uh, April or May. So I did. And uh, around about January, uh, I looked at my Rocky Mountain Power bill. And uh, I said, holy moly. So I called Rocky Mountain Power and said, I think there's something wrong with my meter. And the lady there laughed and she was very nice. And she said, oh, honey, welcome to town. Do you have heat cables? And I said, yeah, how did you know? And that started the journey to figure out just how large this market was. Uh, I found, talked to neighbors and found out, you know, I'm not the only guy who's spending hundreds of dollars a month running these heat cables on the roof. So uh, we, I kind of knew we could do better at that point. I knew there was a way, there's a little bit, of, uh, little bit of improvement. But what I didn't realize is how much improvement there was to be had. And that was sort of where the excitement came. One is the market is surprisingly large. We found out there's 44 million circuits of heat cable in North America. And what that means is 44 million, either, you know, breaker loads or switch loads, legs, runs, 44 million runs of, of heat cable. So certainly quite a few of them are here in these snowy towns. And, you know, we've been to Beaver Creek, uh, Colorado and Tahoe and New Hampshire and all these, uh, you know, we're finding out are actually very similar to what we're, what we're doing here. So let's take a step back. One option historically was turn it on in November and turn it off in, in February. Other options that I understand, some of them are temperature controlled, some of them are timer controlled. Talk to us a little about the state of the industry before you got here yeah. and why what you're doing is different. Wow, thanks. The, 
So actually, it's funny. One of the neighbor recommended to me exactly that and said, well, you could get a thermostat and, you know, that'll help you out. So I called my electrician and said, hey, will you please come and put in a thermostat? And he said, no, I won't. He said, uh, because um, occasionally uh, they'll cause an ice dam. And he said, I've been burned a couple of times with a couple of customers where they've uh, caused an ice dam just due to the fact that um, I guess there was some melting and freezing in the thermostat, you know, uh, wherever that temperature sensor was, it wasn't quite agreeing with what was going on on the roof. So we, yeah, that was sort of the beginning of the push to try to see, well, could we innovate a little bit better than this? And then the other thing that they pointed out was if you live here in, uh, you know, anywhere where it's snowy, anywhere in Park City, anywhere where you have these heat cables, then it's pretty much always below 36 degrees all winter long. And you might get a few hours during the day on a nice bluebird day where it heats up in one part of the structure. Um, but the rest of the time, it's just below freezing all winter. So that that was interesting. And then since that journey, uh, since that time, we have found out when we've been opening up these thermostats over the years that a lot of times they're not set to 36 degrees, like we thought, that the whoever's installing them is setting them closer to 50 degrees. And so we, we started to find out, why is that? And then the electricians would tell us, well... So don't get sued. Exactly. That's exactly right. We don't want callbacks. <laughs> Which, of course, means if you're relying on your thermostat... I mean, imagine... June here. Yeah. The nights are still, you know, getting down to 50. So they're <laughs> in many cases, or at least in for sure in May. So they're running just a whole lot longer than they need to be. And which takes us to the next step. What do you do about it? Well, the, the real, there was, there was two things going on. One is we knew we could do a little bit better, but two, the discovery came when we found out that um, the savings were actually hidden on the roof. And what I mean by that is Everyone's seen the nice zigzag pattern that you have on the roof, and you say, oh, there's my heat cables that are working really well. But occasionally, uh, well, in fact, this year, it's almost uh, at least half of these heat cables, maybe two-thirds. They're covered up by a snow cave, and so the snow builds up so much that even though those heat cables have melted out their zigzag and everything's fine in there, the snow continues to pile up and pile up and pile up until you just can't see what's going on. It looks like snow is hanging off the edge of your roof. And so you're running these heat cables all the time, even if you wanted to be out there saving energy, taking a look. And we call them uh, switch flippers. So I was a switch flipper. Uh, I was out there flipping the switch all the time, trying to save energy. The problem is you lose sight of these heat cables, um, unless it's a really bad snow year, in which case sometimes you can see them all year long. And then when you lose sight, you think, geez, I better keep running these because who knows what's going on up there. So there's got to be a yeah. better way. Yeah. So we, we literally fell into this into this situation. So we were up on the roof. Uh, it was one of those big snow years. I think it was 2016. And we were sort of shoveling some snow off the roof. And we found, whoa, I just fell into what we call now affectionately a snow cave, where along the north edge of the roof, these heat cables had melted a huge cave. It was about two and a half feet high. And it went the entire length of the north part of the structure. And we had no idea. We were on the roof, standing on the roof, waist-deep snow, walking along, walking along. And then, woof, when we got to the edge, we fell in. Thank goodness we were roped in. We thought we were going to fall off the building. Our heart was beating. And then we sat down in there, and we looked to the right, and we looked to the left. And I saw some crispy leaves, little aspen leaves. They were crispy. They were warm and dry. And at that moment, I thought to myself, after I had calmed down, I said, why am I running these heat cables 24 hours a day, 70? I mean, I'm going to shut these things off. It's like spring in here. I was really surprised there weren't um, little chipmunks living up in there, you know, having a, a luau. Uh, there may have been. And so that was, the, that was sort of the aha moment. And I said, okay, I'm going to get down. I'm going to turn these off. And I did. And then the next day I thought, oh, how am I going to know when to turn them back on? And so we decided, well, what we really had to do was stick a monitor up there. So over the course of several years, we 
played around with all different sorts of different sensors. And at the end of the day, what really gave us comfort to know that we were actually monitoring um, the actual conditions and not just a proxy condition um, was with, vi with vision. So we used machine vision. So we tried humidity and moisture and all these things that, you know, people used to use to control their heated driveways. And that's always just a proxy of uh, one, one metric, right? So, oh, there's moisture. Well, <laughs> do they need to be on or off, right? What does that mean? Oh, there's water. Well, what does that mean? But so with, everybody yeah. listening is wondering, yeah. so what percent of the time oh. does your system allow the system to be off between November and April right. versus if they turned it on during that period of time. Is it on half of the time? Is it on a third of the time? That's what we thought. But no, over the last four years, this is our fifth year now, it's 92% off time. And our CTO likes to say 90% of the time we're trying to melt snow and ice that's not even there. So if you're paying an extra $100 a month for heating, yeah. This is going to save you about ninety dollars a month. That's right. On on that, and what is it? How should people think about the cost of a system like yours? Well, I, I think if the cost of, as far as uh, ROI is the way I think about it. So if you're spending, but what's, yeah. what's the out of pocket day yeah. one, and yeah. then to get that ninety dollars a month saving for the hypothetical hundred dollar sure. heating bill. Well, it all depends on the size of your system. We try to not just do a flat price. We try to scale it exactly to how much heat cable. Are you running and how many switches do we have to install? So the brains of the system are this rooftop sensor. So that's one cost right there. So the rooftop, we'll, we'll jump into what that means. So you get the rooftop sensor. Let's say you have eight sections of heat cable. It's a bigger house. Do you need eight uh, rooftop sensors? Probably not. You probably need four, uh, basically monitoring the different aspects of the home. Um, however, if you only have a small run of heat cables, you might just need one. Uh, maybe that is representative of um, the, the overall situation on your roof. So we have to basically start there we start at the roof and we say okay here's the here's the sensor that we need in order to understand the conditions on your roof all winter long even if it's buried in snow so that's sort of the first part second part is how many switches do you have so do you have 120 volt heat cable if so we put in a 120 volt uh, switch that turns them on and off automatically based on the cloud and the machine vision that we have or if you have a 240 volt we do the same thing for 240 volt and then these switches we realized early on uh, we don't just want to turn these loads on and off. We actually want to measure the energy, too, so we can show the customer, okay, here's what your heat cables are burning when they're on, and then here's what uh, the savings that we've calculated for you based on the, the off time. And so we have a package, a sort of a starter package uh, on the website. So let's say you just have a you know, fairly small amount of heat cable for a Park City area, and that's $1,800. So that includes both the sensor and the switches. People almost always see one year, one season, one winter payback for that, for that sort of, um, and if not, maybe, maybe two. So one of the two there. Uh, second thing, you know, if you have a larger home, larger amount, number of sensors, uh, you know, I think that's $2,800. And then, you know, it can kind of, if you have a huge home, lots of heat cable, and, can go up from there. And real quickly, how can people find out more? What's, what's your website? Yeah, so please do come. Come to YouTube, actually. That's what I would love. So powderwatts.com is the website or powderwatts.green because okay, we're really green. We need green to wrap it up there, but we do have cold winters here. We've been speaking with Thomas Clardy. He is with Powderwatts. Uh, and thank you for joining us this morning.
We also want to thank our fabulous guests. Who do we have today? We had Chris Miller talking about chip wars, the quest to dominate the world's most critical technology. We had the sketch guy, Carl Richards, talking about a, finan a financial discussion that really didn't talk that much about finances, which I thought was fascinating. And we've just finished by having a chat with Thomas Cloudy of Powderwatts.